Welcome to the High Performance Human Podcast. I'm your host, Simon Ward. This podcast, my website, and my regular newsletters all focus on the goal of helping you to achieve peak human and athletic performance by interpreting the science and translating it into easy-to-understand lessons. If you enjoy this podcast, I've created a membership program which allows me to provide more in-depth, exclusive content and programs so that you can take your performance to the next level. And at the end of the episode, I'll explain a little bit more about these benefits and let you know how you can join our growing tribe. Recently, I asked some of the folks connected with me on Facebook what concerned them about fitness, strength, nutrition and sleep as they entered their 40s, 50s and 60s. And one of the more frequent responses was about getting injured. And it started me thinking about where the injury was more likely with age. So who better to speak with about this than Olympic physiotherapist Alison Rose. Alison, who's a previous guest on the podcast, runs the Coach House Physio Clinic in Leeds and was the personal physio to Jessica Ennis-Hill and Kelly Holmes. She's a former elite marathon runner and many of the top endurance athletes in Yorkshire visit Alison's clinic on a regular basis, many for proactive treatment to stay healthy and on course for their athletic goals. We will get into a lot of topics today, but to put it simply, if you want top quality advice about how to continue performing at your highest level, we have the solutions in this podcast that will help you stay fit and healthy. So let's get cracking. Welcome to the show again, Alison Rose. Hi Simon, it's been a while. It has been a while, but it's always a pleasure and I'm sure that like you did on our previous podcasts, you are going to give us an hour or two full of amazing, really useful information. Um, that's what it's all about. And of course, we, you're such a good guest that we want to ration you out. We don't want people to have too much of you, I think. It needs to be nice and special. <laughs> that's nice of you. <laughs> so recently, I asked... Uh, a lot of people that follow me on Facebook and social media, what their concerns were about their health and fitness and training as they got over 50 or 60. And quite a significant number of people said that they were worried about getting injured. And it started me thinking about whether just the fact that we're getting older means we're more likely to get injured. Um. I know a lot of people think, oh, well, I'm going to gain weight as I get older. But actually, that's not an inevitability unless you you know, take your eye off the ball with regard to your nutrition. And maybe people think that, um, you know, they're going to get slower. And maybe that's true in some circumstances. But with regard to injury, I thought, I know who I can ask. I'll ask Alison because she'll know the answer. So is it an inevitability that we're going to get injured more um, as we get older? No, it doesn't need to be inevitable and I think it's that's when I think smart training and being Mm -hmm. clever with what you do keeping on top of your homework maybe adapting you know knowing what you're wanting to do in the end whether that's an event or just to stay fit for enjoyment but actually finding out what works for your body that actually keeps you injury free Mm. it does seem that as we get older we have to make changes we can no longer do what we did with impunity when we were 20 or 30. And that were, those were some of the comments that people were making, like, well, I have to warm up for longer now I'm getting older, or I have to stretch a bit more. But 
you know, we go through our whole life making changes and these are just more changes to adapt. And I, and I know I heard somebody else say, would you rather be injured for a, a few weeks or do 15 minutes of preparation work to stop that? You know, which which one frustrates you more? Yeah, well, I think for me, the preparation work that I do actually means that I enjoy my running more because I go out the door and I know I'm prepared and mm. it makes me feel a lot more like I used to do when I was really fit and mm. running a lot more. I think also lifestyle changes. I think we can, all of us can say the reason I get injured more is because I'm older and I'm still training. Well, actually, how much of it is the fact that you're now working from home? So you move less. And we've seen lots of that in the last few years that people are working, walking, working from home, moving less, therefore walking less. Therefore, they're not using their calves and their feet mm. in the same way. So that's the reason why they're then getting niggles, not the fact that they're actually just older. That's quite an interesting point and, and um, it's something I've referred to in a few other podcasts is this idea about being an active couch potato. You know, people go to this, probably still have the habit of working out first thing in the morning like they did pre-COVID, but then they spend all day sat at their desk and thinking, well, that's all right because I've worked out this morning, but eight hours of sitting at your desk doesn't is probably worse than um, an hour of, sorry, if you do an hour of activity in the morning and you sit at your desk all day, that's probably worse than if you did no activity in the morning, but you just potted around like you just mentioned, you know, moving to the coffee machine, getting up to go to the bathroom, going to see a colleague in another office, you know, walking out for lunch um, because you're moving more regularly. Totally agree with you. And they've, they've done research that shows that just getting up and moving regularly is mm. really, really good for you. Mm -hmm. And it's so easy to get distracted, isn't it? And you sag mm. a bit more in your chair and you're sagging over your laptop and... Yeah. Two hours becomes three, which mm. is really bad for you. Mm. So before we start thinking about the ways in which we can um, help to prevent injury, maybe we ought to actually define what an injury is. So for those people who don't know, you run a very successful physiotherapy clinic in Leeds called The Coach House, and you have a lot of elite athletes come in there. You have a lot of recreational athletes, and you also have people that come in that have just got a back problem or a, you know, hurt, hurt their calf playing squash and want some treatment. So um, you've got experience of a whole manner of injuries. So how would you define it simply? Yeah, to me, an injury is something that actually stops you doing what you want to do or you have to adapt your training to doing something that you're not running anymore, you're now in the pool or on the bike. That, to me, would be an injury. There are obviously niggles, which probably most people have a niggle of some sort, and that is normal for athletes in their 20s all the way up through to the older athletes. So to me, a niggle would be something that you can manage, you know, that your calf gets tight, therefore you have to keep on top of the stretching and strengthening for it, which enables you to still carry on doing what you want to do. Mm. So if I see somebody running along the road and limping, are they, have they got a niggle or are they injured and just persisting to try and work through it? That person, if they're actually limping, I would probably put them heading into the injury category. They're still able to do. I think it's quite easy to deny that you've got anything. But if you're actually at the point of limping, there's obviously a pain driver there that's going to make you not move as well as you could do, but you probably are then starting to overload other mm. areas in your body that will then add to the things that you need to unpick when you do eventually get fully injured. Mm. 
do you, do you, I mean, you're, this is your profession, treating people with injuries, and I'm a professional coach, but I can't help myself when I'm driving the car, watching people running or walking, and or when I'm out running or riding my bike along the towpath, and seeing people, and off, probably 90% of those people that are running look like they're uncomfortable and they're in pain, whether that's pain from the effort or pain from an injury. Do, do you find yourself doing that as well, or is it just me? No, that's that's me as well. I do look at some of those people and think, I'm not so sure that you're maybe enjoying that as much as you probably could do. And again, a lot of those things that you're seeing in their technique, it would probably be possible to change really, really easily Mm. just by doing a few things. But as a physio patient of mine pointed out, they may well have a completely different perception to you. You may be seeing that, but they might be running along the road feeling absolutely fantastic in themselves. So, which I hadn't taken into account that they may well be feeling fantastic. Yeah, maybe the pain face they have is just habitual. And actually, they're enjoying it internally, but grimacing externally. Fair enough. (laughs) I mean, I also see people and I think, you could probably get more benefit out of this if you just walked rather than run. You know, Um, certainly when when I see some techniques, I think, I'm just going to stop and give you a card now. It's only just up the road. (laughs) Well, I'm glad it's not just me. I, uh, I do have to make sure I concentrate on the road at times because I can get distracted and uh, almost run into the back of somebody. I also look at some of those people and think, actually, it's almost quite unfair that some people's technique isn't perfect, and that I do find intriguing. Mm. Presumably, they don't have any pain, and then you know other people who have perfect technique, Yeah, they're getting injured all the time, and I think some of that is yeah. to do with tissue resilience, and mm. which I do find fascinating. Yeah, I, I, I've seen those people as well. But, you know, a snapshot of somebody running, you don't know their backstory, do you? They might only have just started running a few weeks ago. Yeah. You know, they might not have a history of injury. They might they might be in one of those lucky periods in your life when you're running without injury, but who knows what they've got had in the past or got coming on. Okay, so um, obviously you see a lot of injuries. In endurance athletes, most of them chronic. I mean, I guess you get... I, I guess that you get to see acute injuries where somebody's running along and their hamstrings just twanged or their calves just twanged. But is that the smaller percentage of the ones you see? For endurance athletes, probably yes. And I think for the older endurance athletes, markedly yes, because they tend to be doing less speed Mm. work. Um, But I do think quite often the majority of what we see will be what we would call an acute on chronic Injury. Okay. So that hamstring that you've just mentioned may well be because they went over on their ankle last year. They didn't think it was too bad. They managed to get back to running within a couple of weeks, but their ankle actually is still quite stiff from when they had that initial injury. Um, So therefore, they haven't been able to push through that foot as well as they had been before that. So the hamstring is an overload because of an ankle injury that was seemed to be quite inconsequential. Mm. So we get lots and lots and lots of those. And I think those are the kind of ones that actually, yes, you have tweaked your hamstring. However, it does give us a really nice opportunity to maybe unpick some of the things that are probably going to make you injured in the future, have certainly led to this particular hamstring. And they're the ones I find really exciting because we do get lots of people going, well, actually, I thought I was just feeling old these days. But actually, now that things are looser and I'm moving better, I don't feel quite so old. And actually, Mm. I'm enjoying things a lot more. 
Well, good luck if you had to unpick all my injuries in the past few years, Alice. And I, I think I could probably start about the age of six when I fell down the stairs and banged my head on the storage heater and split my eye open. And then it carried on at regular intervals until my current age. So there's a lot of layers of injury and um, and trauma that my body's had to soak up over the years, isn't there? Not not, and that's ignoring the just the the years of playing rugby and the impacts where I didn't end up injured. I just woke up the next morning with my neck feeling a bit sore or my back feeling a bit tight. Yeah, and I, I, the job that I do is I'm really lucky because I see lots of elite athletes and a lot of the ones at the moment I've, in my current group, I've probably worked with them for 20 years. Mm. So since they were teenagers right the way through. Um, so they're the ones that you'll tend to probably have had some big injuries with them because things have happened, the acute things. But I will see them every week, mm. in, by and large, and we'll be making sure that they're functioning and moving really, really well. Then you get the older athletes, and then you get the ones that have got that kind of injury history that you've just described that I don't think people acknowledge or remember half of the things that have gone oh. on. So what you've got this week or this year is actually the effect of all of the things that went before. Sometimes it's, you know, children. And if, you know, if you, when people get pregnant, there's all the ligament laxity that comes with mm. that. The birth is really traumatic. People might have cesarean sections, but all of that will actually alter your body as does dental work and car crashes and slipping down the stairs and, all the things that are completely normal things that we all do. Yeah, I remember when, if you remember, I came to see you when I broke my collarbone, or shortly oh, afterwards. Yes. Do you remember that? I mean, that's that's um, that's over seven years ago now, and uh, that that was that was probably the biggest accident I've had on my bike where I've where I've suffered injuries like that. But then you you and then Louisa subsequently were asking me, well, let's go back, you know, um, what injuries have you had? And then Louise said, what's that scar on your eyebrow there? And, oh, well, what's that scar on the side of your head there? And, um, oh, have you broken your collarbone on this side as well? And, uh, oh, what, what, what's this scar from here? And then, I, and like you say, those are things I'd forgotten, but I had 15 stitches in my head here from a, a wound where I, I hit a locker door during a scuffle at school, but... There would have been some significant whiplash effect in everything else, wouldn't there, that I never even considered at the age of 15? Um, oh, completely. And, you know, to just fall off a bike and fracture your collarbone, there will be a lot of forces going through the rest of your body as mm. well as the one that was big enough to go through your collarbone. Oh, I had five broken ribs. Yeah. So, that, you know, there was a, that would have been trauma to my thorax, wouldn't it? And all of those yeah. nerves on my spine and probably my pelvis and... Uh, I had yeah. some, I had some scrape, scrapes and bumps on my knee, so there would have been some other trauma there. And I think actually, one of the results of that was that I needed a cartilage operation eight months later. I managed to do an Ironman in between, and then I needed a cartilage operation because the twisting of my knee at force out of my pedal created a bucket handle tear. So, but that didn't pop up until later. So, you know, it's it was ongoing for a year or two. Layers and layers. Layers and layers. Oh. Well, chronic injuries then. So we're talking about layers upon layers. So if you're turning 50, you haven't really had many injuries or you've had a few. I mean, do you just keep going until you have to go and see somebody like yourself with an injury, by which time you've probably had to stop? Or do you take a proactive approach 
and go and get, even though you, even though you may not have any injuries now, take that proactive approach, invest a little bit of money and go and get a full body assessment and find out what those likely hotspots are coming up. I, I think I know what you're going to say, but I'd like to know why you would recommend one approach over another. Personally, I would suggest going and getting a full assessment. There's a few reasons for that. So firstly, even as a physio, it would be quite hard for me to assess myself and I will go and see mm. other physios that I work with to make sure that I'm not missing anything. Um, getting that f- full assessment will identify <coughs> things before they happen. So, for example, you may not have noticed that you've got a stiff hip, but actually that stiff hip, which I know from my own experience, I had a slightly stiff hip, that was resulting in me not being able to breathe very well when I was running. But I think that probably came off the back of an Achilles injury I'd had previously. So finding things that potentially are easily fixed is really, really important. Identifying something like, for example, a stiff hip. Well, actually, if you can get that looser and have specific exercises for that, actually that in the long term may well help to save your hip joint from bony overload Mm. in the future. And that might be 20 years down the line. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, we get lots and lots of clients that are in their 40s, 50s, 60s, that they just want to keep exercising. I get some in every four or five weeks. I get some that will come because they travel from a lot further, that will come in a couple of times a year, have an MOT, get sort of some directions. We change the exercises for their specific specific for what's happening at that particular point. And these are people that just love exercising. They want to keep exercising. And that's why they come in for these kind of things. They don't want to get injured because actually at that point, mm. there's a huge knock-on effect on everything from your mental health, the way you operate at work, the way you are at home mm. before you even get to the training that you're doing. I mean, I guess some listeners will be saying, well, of course you'd say that because that just means more money in your pocket. But I've been coming to see um, yourself and Louisa at regular intervals since I broke my collarbone, which is seven years now. And it's definitely kept me out to stay on the straight and narrow. And I know when I talk to Louise, and I guess you're the same as well, is that when you've got athletes that are proactive, it's actually way more satisfying for you to keep them on the um, on the right path and it is to have to constantly help them to get back there and be repairing them. That's probably quite frustrating when you see the same people coming in over and over again with the same problems. Yes, there is that. I think I, I think you'd actually save yourself money in the long term as well because mm. actually if you get an acute injury and you need to come and see us six times within a few weeks to get over that, if your back is mm. so bad that you can't actually function, you're mm. going to be spending a lot more money. Yeah. Um, Having a physio that knows you, I think that's really, really important. And mm-hmm. again, I know from all the people I've worked with, some of whom are just coming twice a year, you know, I know what they were doing the last time. I've write, written my notes. I can remember how you were moving then. I can see changes. So mm-hmm. we can then identify things that are actually changing and hopefully get to the bottom of them before they do become an issue. Uh, over the years, I've come to use this uh, phrase called the physical pension. You know, I, I think most people that are um, smart and sensible have been encouraged to or taken upon their own a fiscal pension where they pay money in each month so that when they get to retirement age, they've got a nice pot of money that enables them to enjoy all the things that they want to. But a lot of those people aren't physically able to enjoy the things that they thought they might. You know, maybe they can't go and walk the Great Wall of China or go up to Everest Base Camp because their hip's hurting or their back's too tight. 
So they're refined to going on cruises and sitting in deck chairs in Benidorm. But a fiscal pension, you need to, you can't pay into it when you're 55 and paying a large sum and expect to have a large sum at the end. You have to pay in little bits along the way. And I think it's the same with the physical pension. You know, if you, if you do want to enjoy your time in your 60s and 70s and keep doing the things that you love, you've got to start paying into that little pension years before. And, and then it's, and then it's about just staying on a roll and staying on top of things. Um, and I think, Probably when you're in your 30s, 20s, 30s and 40s, you feel invincible. So you perhaps don't see the need to be doing that. Yeah, and I I completely agree with you. And actually, I always say to the patients, well, actually, you're 40 now or 50 now. But if you live until you're 90, Mm. that's a long time that you hopefully will be healthy and active. And I think once you start losing your health, it just makes life that little bit more difficult for everybody. Um, but if you can just keep doing that, and 40 years is a long time. And if you're thinking mm. for the big picture of why you want to stay fit and healthy and enjoying what you're doing for as long as possible, and yes, you might need to make some adaptations, but should you, a long way down the line, need to have a hip replacement, for example, that recovery from that will be mm. much, much better if you're fitter and stronger anyway. So, you know, hopefully none of us will ever need one. But mm. I, I saw some statistics about... Uh... If you're over 65 and you fall because you've got bad balance and you break your hip, um, the percentage of people who survive more than one year is actually horribly low once they go into hospital and they've got limited movement and, and they're in hospital and how that affects the mental health. You know, the number of people who die within the next 12 months is way higher than I would have expected. And, that's, and, and often that's down to balance. Um, and that that is something else that we know deteriorates when you lose um, functional strength and coordination, and all of which all of which can be simply prepared and, and um, guarded against with some daily actions. Absolutely, and it it is one of those things. Again, research has proven that we do even athletes who maybe think that their balance might be better than non-athletes, but even they still have to mm. work at their balance and. Again, I find it quite fascinating when people's nervous systems just get really, really sluggish or you have an injury that means that you maybe don't use one leg as much as the other one. So your your brain almost starts paying a lot more attention to mm. the, the leg that it is using. So even those kind of things start tipping how quickly your nervous system can react. And mm. I really like with my older athletes to start throwing in neural challenges so getting them to do different exercises that just mm-hmm. actually sparks things off a little bit more which yeah. does fire up their whole system which hopefully again just keeps everything mm. ticking over yeah i'm just thinking about um the whole neural system thing there and how that gets tired you know with if you've been racing or if you've been doing a lot of training and then you just feel like you're not running very well you maybe you maybe don't pick your foot up as high um, you catch your foot on a tree stump or something if you like running through the woods, you stumble a bit, that, that can cause other problems. Uh, but there's other days when you feel really fresh and you can respond very quickly and that nerves take a lot longer, don't they? And the central nervous system takes a lot longer to recover than, um, than the muscular system. And I, 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 again, I think that's overlooked sometimes when we're talking about recovering from events and big events is my legs are no longer sore, so that, that's okay. I'm okay to run, but maybe there's other things that need a bit longer to recover. Yeah, and I think that's really important. And um, as you know, in 2013, I had a Achilles operation because I had um, a bit of a bone spur. And before that, I'd had a really interesting thing. So I'd had that 
like that foot had been sore for quite a while. The Olympics were in 2012. So mm-hmm. I had a lot of things going on, which meant I couldn't go and have surgery that year. Um, and I saw a physio who just did some neural testing. And actually the difference between my right and my left leg mm-hmm. was absolutely staggering because of rehab I'd been doing on one side and the other side having to take over for the other one. But I think one of my my big things that came out of that was if I hadn't actually kept going and doing the things that I had been doing and cycling, because I could still cycle, mm-hmm. then actually I think over the space of that time, I don't even know if I'd ever got back into sport quite as comfortably because things were definitely changing because that had niggled away for so long because I had to wait for my surgery. So um, mm. I think it is just really important to be able to, like you said, do something every day. Just keeping things going a little bit every day makes a big difference. Mm. I, When you were talking about folks getting older there and being able to, to do and be active and functionally active into the 90s, it makes me think of those areas where they've done the research, you know what they call the blue zones, where they've got larger than normal proportions of people that live into the 90s mm. and 100s. And, you know, they talk about the Mediterranean diet's one of the things there, but actually you see a lot in some of those Mediterranean countries, you see also some of those people smoke still. Well, how does that all work? Or they, they, they have a glass of wine every day. Well, we're told that that's probably bad for us. But if you look at the the whole environment they live in, they're probably not living in a city. They're living in a nice country area, a valley. They're, they're, valued as, they're still valued as members of society. Um, so they're not just discarded or put, you know, gone into nursing home and forgotten about by everybody and given you know, jigsaw puzzles to do every day. They're probably still active and they maybe still have a purpose, whether that's going and tending a little olive grove or mowing the lawn, or maybe it's just being carer for the grandchildren. They still have a purpose. And they're not maybe training, but they're still able to walk up and down the hill or the garden and do that physical activity that keeps them going. And it's all of that stuff that turns them into or helps them continue to be resilient individuals, isn't it? And and perhaps in our Western lifestyles, a lot of those things are sort of slowly cancelled out as we get, as we age. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think just the social side of exercise is great. And as you say, just getting up and being able to do things and exercise doesn't actually have to be exercise running around after the grandchildren is still exercise mm. and learning to what well, keeping moving and playing different games and all of those kind of challenges mm. yeah and that's something i try and encourage the triathletes to think about more is okay you 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 are aerobically fit you can swim bike and run in a straight line mostly so there's one thing that you talked about and sort of doing different directions and different activities and your engine's great, but the bodywork might be falling apart. And actually, the thing that's limiting you now isn't the engine, it's the bodywork. And, um, you know, like a classic old Ferrari that goes, sounds great, but when you go around a corner, it just wobbles and shakes and steers off the road. Yeah, one of the big, big things that I really like doing with people is getting them to skip. So using a skipping mm-hmm. rope. And that I find quite intriguing because c- people can quite often, you know, jump up and down on two legs. The minute you stick a put a skipping rope in there as well. That actually is a real challenge for the nervous system. And then they start doing all sorts of things that actually means they're not using their feet and ankles properly. They're then mm-hmm. using the hamstrings to lift their legs yeah. up rather than actually yeah. using their feet and their ankles. So that kind of coordination and spring and ping, which for anybody that does use their feet is really important. Mm. But I know when when we were younger, there were, you know, 
the kids took skipping ropes to school and there was a lot of that kind of activity. So you were neurally training things from a young age. You were training all that spring and ping in your Achilles and your feet. But I think they seem to do an awful lot less of that at schools these days. But also just adding little things in like that, which is great for bone density. It's great for all your soft tissues. Great for your coordination. And it certainly is going to pick up any areas where you're just not quite so pingy in your feet. And that's really important as well. Um, Back to that thing about seniors who fall over. It's not just about having a lack of balance. It's about having the foot dexterity to be able to make an adjustment if you do suddenly lose your balance. You know, if you do, if you do catch your foot on the curb as you're crossing the road um, or you catch one foot against the other, are you able to adjust where your feet are quickly to be able to get them under your body rather than just, you know, falling flat on your face? Yeah, and that speed of putting your foot down, that's yes. really important. Yeah. Um, yeah, I like I like skipping. Um, I talked to a guy called Owen Everard. I don't know if you know Owen. He's an Irish physio. He used to be a, um, an Irish international runner. But he, um, we were talking about plyometrics for runners, and he said, um, "You know, it, it makes me cringe when I see people doing depth jumps off something that's as high as his worktop." Uh, and it's not necessary for running. He said, "Just do some skipping. Um, it's self-limiting because when you start, um, you can't do it for very long because the skipping rope's too challenging. You keep stepping on it, but as you get better." you'll be able to keep going. So um, do two to three minutes at the beginning. It might be two or three spins of the rope before you trip over on, on that. But then as you get better, you'll probably be able to do two or three minutes continuously. And that's probably all you need if you're doing it two or three times a week to, like you say, to keep that um, spring and ping in the ankles and feet and the Achilles. Yeah, and I think also where you're getting that spring and ping from. So we've had quite a few people in recently with sore knees, but actually when you ask them to do put fingers on the wall and just do some jumping with their knees relatively straight, mm-hmm. quite often they can't maintain the ping and the spring from the feet and they're actually having to bend their knees and there's a lot of things going. Well, actually, that's probably the reason why you're getting your sore knees is because mm. you're overloading the knee because of lack of function further down, which when you're running, you can probably get away with because you maybe are using your hip flexors to lift your legs through rather than propelling mm-hmm. off your feet. So those kind of little subtle changes are subtle but important. So I think we should come... I'm going to make a, mar- a note about this here with a big exclamation mark next to it. Skipping might be something that we need to think about introducing for a lot of people, even if it's part... I mean, that could be part of an active preparation warm-up, couldn't it, before you go running? Yeah, Definitely, and just making sure that you're skipping properly. So with the people that skip less well, I will get them to you know, double foot jump without the rope, mm-hmm. feel what that feels like, and then add the rope in. So they know the difference between the two, so they mm. can eventually then hopefully mm. do it with the rope. Yes. All right. So let's talk about endurance athletes. Um, most of the listeners will be triathletes. Um, we've identified that mostly endurance athletes have got chronic injuries but they may be an acute injury that's as a result of something chronic if i'm understanding what you're saying um what are the primary injuries that you see in endurance athletes and specifically triathletes usually the the biggest ones will be feet feet ankles lower legs so from the knee down um quite often achilles uh plantar fascia things, calf mm. issues, even just calf tightness. Um, so hamstrings, if people are doing speed work, but without adequate glute max firing and knees, um, those will be most of those. Um, on the bike, shoulders and the back, 
are probably the things that take mm. quite a lot of the sort of impact there. And that's from and and most of those are just been from from being in a fixed position for a long time. Yeah. yeah. No, definitely. Um, and then swimming is largely shoulders. But mm. I think with triathletes, it, they're a really hard combination because. So if you look at the triathlete <coughs> itself, but the muscles that you're using when you're swimming, it's quite easy. You can flutter kick and kick, but use your hamstrings without using your glutes at all. So, I mean, mm. that is already setting up a kind of strength training system for hamstrings into leg extension, but without the glutes coming into play. Mm-hmm. When you're on the bike, you're using your glutes in the very outer range and pressing down and through. And as those get fatigued, you may well start using your adductors, for example, to help to increase the force through there. Mm-hmm. And then obviously when you get off the bike or off the, yeah, so when you get off the bike and then start running, you're then asking your glutes to work in that inner range that you haven't trained in the pool. Mm. you have been overusing different muscles on the bike and then you're asking them to do something completely different again and but again this time probably with quite tight mm-hmm. hip flexors so it's a really hard combination and obviously the requirements if you're doing a olympic distance a half iron man and an iron man mm. they're really specific requirements and the fatigue in an iron man for example that off the swim then onto that really long bike and then you need to run there's probably going to be a lot of things going on by the time you even get off the bike before you start probably shuffling down the road because you've been in one position for such a long time. And that in itself can give you injuries mm. in that maybe, maybe it's the first 5 or 10K of that last part of the run. I think one of the initial assessments you did on me, you, you um, recognised that I was tight in my thoracic spine, so my rib cage, and I didn't have a great deal of, of rotation. And then you explained to me why that was probably causing some of my Achilles issues because that lack of rotation meant my hips had to compensate, um, but not in the not in the in the normal way they would do, and um, that then cascaded down, which meant my Achilles and my car well my calves and therefore my Achilles had to do more work and everything has a breaking point, doesn't it? Um, totally, and, and that's probably one of the biggest things we see is people mm. that are absolutely rigid through their top half. And you get the the ones that are rigid because it is actually stiff and they can't move it. You get the ones that actually they're not stiff at all. So if they sit there and you ask them to rotate right and left, they've got loads of range. Mm. But their brain doesn't remember that it has to be used when you're doing things. So mm. it's retraining the movement that they've got, but then mm. they've forgotten how to use mm. and access. But you're absolutely right. That will massively overload your feet, your Achilles, your shin bone, and all of that screwing of the foot into the floor when you're running. And if you don't obviously recognise it comes from a lot further up, you could be going around in circles. Mm. So I remember in our very first podcast that we did way back in 2017, I asked you what percentage of um, triathlon injuries were related to running and you gave me a figure of around 70 to 80%. Do you think that still holds true? I do, actually. Yeah. And I think it's funny because we don't see... We don't see that many cyclists with major injuries. A lot of them will want to come in more for performance and wanting to get things right so they can perform better. And I think swimming and biking is just so much more forgiving, isn't it, than mm. than running? I remember when British Triathlon started their first performance centre in Bath and speaking to a couple of the physios there who'd been used to working with the runners and the cyclists and, and now they were starting to see some triathletes come in. And they were saying that 
um, you know, the the injuries that they were noticing in the triathletes were were caused by the running. You know, somebody would say, "Oh, I've been doing this, and now I've got an Achilles pump," but actually, they were they were probably initiated from all the extra cycling, and it's that combination of the the fixed hip position that you're in most of the time, or the sort of hunched back position, and that was causing tightness that then meant that the gait was slightly altered when people were running, which caused a running injury. Um, and they'd not seen that before. It, it sort of caused them to have to think about a whole new treatment plan and prevention plan. Yeah, and I think triathletes are generally tired. They do <laughs> so much training. Yeah, well, uh, we don't. No, hold on. We don't. We're normal. It's everybody else that's lazy. <laughs> but if you look at, I don't know, marathon runners, yeah, they'll do a lot of miles. But actually, I know full well that some of our elite triathletes are doing lots of running miles lots of other things they're mm. still finding time to go to the gym and do all their rehab and they're swimming a lot so that just neural fatigue muscle fatigue well you ask a triathlete about when they're having a bit of downtime and they say yeah i'm only doing six or seven hours of training a week right just an hour a day right well that that will be an elite recreational marathoner wouldn't it an elite club runner that's training for London, that's going to go sort of 2.30, 2.45 and probably be doing six or seven hours of running a week. Um, your elite master swimmers probably wouldn't be doing anywhere near that. No. And even your elite recreational cyclists probably wouldn't be doing any more than that. But for some reason, we've now normalised six or seven hours a week to be an easy week. And if I'm training hard, I've got, to, you know, I get people coming to me going, I'm doing an Ironman. I probably need to be doing 16 to 20 hours of training a week. Where the hell have they got that figure from? They've got it because somebody they've seen that's done really well has said that's what they've been doing. But that person's built up to it for years. And now the newbie comes in and thinks, well, that's what I need to be successful. They don't even have 16 spare hours in the week. So then they start they start compromising on their sleep, getting up earlier in order to do the training. Now we're adding another layer of fatigue in. Yeah, I think the other thing with triathletes, if you swim first thing, then you do your run, then you've got your big bike, then you've got your gym stuff. Well, there's actually not much time for recovery in there, is there? No. So yes, they're training long hours, but for a runner, if you go out running in the morning at, I don't know, seven, and then you run again in the evening at six, there's a nice big long recovery mm. patch, and then you've got another 12 hours till you go out again the following day. But triathletes don't have that luxury. Well, I, I can remember I worked with some... Um, triathletes who were students at Loughborough and they had a strength coach there and she said that she used to see them at that time in the day like you just mentioned it was after three other sessions they would swim in the morning they would probably um, run or do a turbo session at lunchtime in between this they were going to their lectures so they were probably walking there or riding there because most of them didn't have a car then they would go and do that other session in the evening and then the gym session would come on the back of that. So not only had they already done three hours of training, they probably hadn't eaten enough to refuel after all of that because they're students, right? They're young men and women. They're probably not quite as conversant with that sort of thing. And, you know, they just um, didn't have the time to eat properly. They weren't allowed to eat in lectures and they were training at lunchtime. So how do you stuff the food in while you're walking between also, one and the other? You so, haven't got time, have you? Yeah. There aren't actually enough hours in the day to yeah. probably get the calories in yeah. that you need, which brings us back to the other point that we were talking about earlier, that the nutrition when you're in your 20s mm. sets you up for you know healthy mm. bones later on in life and healthy muscles and good quality tendons and everything else. So if you're, you know, you're probably, a lot of those young younger ones are probably depleted mm. because of time restraints. And it's purely in- unintentional, but actually... Yeah. 
between either training or not having the time to eat in between mm. as well as you probably could do. Yeah, and probably not having the skills to know uh, to choose the right nutritional um, cho- foods anyway. And I know that Narelle used to say it, sometimes it just wasn't worth them actually coming in the gym. We couldn't do anything more than some stretching and some breathing because they weren't, back to your point about technique, if you're going to lift, you need to do that with good technique so you don't cause other problems and their central nervous system was so fatigued that they just they weren't even able to pick something up off the floor with the right posture um so it just wasn't worth it yeah no definitely Um, i think your thing people saying that they look at other people and think they need to do the same amount of training we see this in runners but not every runner has to do vast amount of miles to be successful and i've treated a number of marathon runners who've been incredibly successful on probably Mm. 40 miles less in a week than others but actually that's worked for them they've been able to train fresh they haven't got injured off that if they try increasing the miles they do get injured so actually they're so lucky that they've got that kind of aerobic system that means that they Mm. can be successful but on far less miles and it's not the same for everybody it's not but also back to that whole point about you know at the end of that long race when you're slowing down because it typically it isn't necessarily the fastest person over those last 10 miles or last 10 kilometers it's a person who slows down the least and those are two different they might be the same thing but they're probably different and it's certainly the case for age group triathletes is you can see a massive drop off after 13 miles on the run and i can guarantee that when those people get to the last mile it won't be their aerobic system that's letting them down you don't see them breathing like it was their last breath you know like you might see somebody at the end of a 5k race they're actually quite composed but they can't pick the feet up the hips are tight they're probably hinging a little bit and leaning forward the the shoulders are leaning forward so that they're not breathing properly and they've lost all postural control and muscular control um just because the body work's shutting down yeah and i think you know also at that point it's good to be strong, but what kind of strength do you need? Mm. You don't need probably brute strength at that point, do you? You actually need to have a lot of endurance in your neural system yeah. and technically be really good so that as you start to fatigue, you're not mm. losing the technique yeah. and you can maintain that. And actually, even more important, you actually know how you should be running. So therefore, mm-hmm. if you know that you're starting to sag, mm. you can just keep yourself up and keep your arms swinging in the way that you know they should swing. Yeah. Um, I know Louise is a big fan of fascia. And when people start adopting poorer postures, the fascia starts to tighten up in certain places and become relaxed in others. And that means then you don't get that elasticity and recoil that you get when all the fascia areas are working properly. Do you, do you um, I was going to say, do you put a great deal of store in fascia? You, are you a big fan of it? Yes. Because um, I know most people will be going, I don't know what they're talking about now, I'm going to switch off. But I'd say there's now a movement about training the fascia as well, isn't there? Yeah, and I think that elastic recoil and probably the easiest way to probably picture it is if you um, think about the sprinters and actually they're doing those much bigger movements. But your fascia is basically um, like the sort of sausage skin that goes around all your body and that all connects and it's Mm. all in different directions. But, you know, between your right heel, it goes up into your left shoulder. So as you wind that up, it's like Mm. stretching a piece of elastic that... Mm then gives you that elastic recoil. And it's one of those things that is really, really good to be able to access that because it's another way of getting some power. Mm. 
but that then is need you you are then needing to be able to move well to be able to access that properly but, but going back to volume I know a lot of people who do marathons or triathlons who, if they're looking for improvements in performance, will think, well, I just need to do more miles. That's what's letting me down. Um, From what I've seen over the years and from conversations I've had with you and and your peer group, it it seems to me that actually that's not the answer. The answer is making sure that you're more economical so that you're not losing energy with each stride in the run, that that you're more streamlined and more economical and technically efficient in the water so that you're conserving energy so you can make it stretch out and last longer, at least for the duration of the race. It doesn't matter what happens. Once you've broken the tape, does it? You can collapse then. But for that period, you need to be technically efficient and moving economically. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think people... Uh, triathletes again are really really lucky so if you cross train as a triathlete mm. and you can't run so you can do more biking you can't run too much <clears throat> so you can still do more biking so you're actually getting fit doing the events you need to do mm. but if your feet and calves aren't strong enough for example you can't just increase your running because actually then you will get injured but mm. actually you can cross train and cross training is fantastic for keeping you fit while you're strengthening up the areas that are weaker Mm. and we've had lots of people that have run personal bests by improving their technique doing lots of cross training and then dovetailing those together and then coming out and running personal bests because they've managed to juggle Mm. all those areas really nicely together well so here's a question for you you're a triathlete as an example you get a calf problem or an achilles problem that makes it painful to walk so you're having treatment for that now, those calf muscles and Achilles um, tendons are still quite active while you're cycling. So shouldn't does that increasing the cycling you're doing not put them under more strain and delay the recovery, or is, it, or is that good for them? Again, that's probably where you'd need some advice, depending on your own situation. Mm. Because that would be the default for most cyclists triathletes is i can't run but at least i can still cycle so i'll just replace those runs with more cycling and i'm never sure whether that is the right approach well actually it it could be that for those people i don't want you doing any more cycling Mm. but actually i'm very happy for you to go and aqua jog which actually will start Mm -hmm. working on the muscles that you need to use for running Mm. um or you could potentially do a bit more swimming so no i think yeah every every situation is different um and I think that's where, you know, getting the advice of a professional would be useful. But actually, if hanging over a bike for hours on end mm. is already a little bit of a problem because your back half is not working well enough in the muscles that you want to run with, then actually aqua jogging might well be better for you. You see, aqua jogging, I remember when Malcolm and Jack were running the performance squad, you'd see a lot of athletes in one lane with the aqua jogging belts on going up and down or in the diving pit. But then I hear people say, well, you know, the research shows that you don't really preserve your um, aerobic function with aqua jogging and it's not a good replacement. But it sounds like you're a big fan. I mean, I've done my fair share of aqua jogging and it's boring as hell. You know, if you think swimming's boring, try aqua jogging. But um, there's more to it than just aerobic function then. Yeah, and, you know, you, you can make the sessions as hard as you want to make them. So you can do anaerobic work in there. But the other thing that I think is really good for is if you do it badly, you'll probably end up sinking under the surface of the water. So you have to use your core Mm. and you have to move your arms properly and you have to move your legs properly. So you are actually reinforcing a lot of neural firing in the correct ways 
because otherwise you probably will end up sinking. Well, there's also a lot to be said for um, water as a, a medium for recovery activity, isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah. You know, because you've got some resistance, but it's not great. And then there's the cool. Generally, there's the cooling effect of the water. Um, you're still going through the motions of moving the muscles, but without any loading. Yeah, so circulation. There's a bit of compression there as well. Mm. Um, no, I I really like mm. aqua jogging. Don't like doing it quite so much, but I am a fan of it. <laughs> do as I say, not as I do. Maybe. Um, let's talk about plantar fascia. How, how does how did we how does that develop? Is it and why do some people get it and not others? Well, when you were asking earlier about cyclist injuries and triathlete injuries, I think plantar fascia particularly. So you get runners, obviously, they get plantar fascia injuries and Again, quite often, you may well have a really stiff ankle, which means you don't roll through the foot properly. If your calves aren't strong enough, you probably are just going to load your plantar fascia. Poor biomechanics, so if your foot's really flat, you're not going to be able to use it properly, but also your plantar fascia will be on stretch all the time. You've got plantar nerves that go down through your plantar fascia as well. So sometimes you can get pain in your plantar fascia or some of the other muscles in your foot that might mimic plantar fasciitis but actually be neural instead Mm. what i think is and i've had quite a few triathletes where triathletes obviously run when they've been on a bike Mm -hmm. cyclists don't run very often or if they do it's quite it's limited by comparison to the triathletes and we've had quite a number who've had really chronic plantar fascia problems because they've sat on a bike for hours, the really, really, really hard cycling shoes, you you can press your foot against that. So your mm. foot is basically being in a contracted position, which I believe puts a lot of pressure and compresses those plantar nerves and really shortens your plantar fascia. But that compression of the nerves, by doing that, you then get off the bike and then you try and run when you, everything's really you know stuck because you've been able to do that against those hard shoes. Mm. So I've had triathletes who've, We've identified that it's that that's the problem. We've obviously treated the local areas. They've been able to strengthen up their calves, mobilize their nerves, do all the other bits that I've asked them to do. But simply for quite a few of those, changing the shoe to a cycling shoe that's not nearly as hard, so a cheap plasticky shoe that they wear for training. Not carbon fiber soles then? No. Or even (sighs) a mountain bike shoe, heaven forbid. Um... But yeah, that can actually make mm. a massive difference to them being able to get over that injury and stay injury free. I seem to remember that both Non and Vicky, Non Stanford and Vicky Holland had plantar fascia problems at around the same time. And um, I've, I've spoken to both of them about that prescription there for changing the shoes and um, using cheaper ones, yeah. um, which would have been part of the recovery. Not all of it, obviously, because there'd been a lot of hard work and pr- prolonged as well. But in one of one of those cases, one of them started wearing the harder cycling shoes, and within a couple of weeks, the foot was really sore again. Mm. Within a couple of weeks of changing them, completely back to you know to pain free. Mm. So, are you saying that we should not have carbon fiber soles? Then, should we just advise people not to buy those, or um, is it okay to wear them? But then, in order to make sure you don't get plantar fascia problems, there's some exercises that we need to do to maintain the pliability of the plantar fascia i think women tend to have that problem more than men really okay why is why is that then i'm not entirely sure i don't know whether i don't i actually don't know but just just sort of subjectively Mm -hmm. um 
from asking. It does seem to be more women than men, but I have absolutely no idea why. I think maybe they, as they get more tired, more you know, they might get more tired more quickly if they're particularly training at the kind of levels and the distances they're doing. Whether that then means that they're then pushing down more through their feet, I actually don't know. Um, sometimes mixing up the shoes, I, th- I presume some people maybe do just scrunch their toes. You get that in runners; people scrunch their toes more than others. Mm. So I presume in the bikes, some people just do that more naturally as a habit. So even you know, maybe noticing that maybe that is your habit. Um, I think the other thing with some of those shoes, it, it you can just let your foot just relax onto that, which again is just going to stretch out those nerves in a completely different way. So, mm. so to guard against plantar fascia, then if you haven't had it already, and to make sure that you don't, um, what can we be doing on a? Is it a daily? Is it a daily type of um, activity we need to do or every other day or just before we go running or cycling or just after? Yeah, calf strength would be my, I think everybody needs to do it to guard against anything from the knee down Mm -hmm. and probably anything from the knee up as well in a lot of cases. If you've done a lot of maybe a long run or um, a long bike, you know, just using a tennis ball or a rubber dog ball, just rolling that under your foot because... Our poor little feet, they do a hell of a lot for us and we'll probably never give them the attention that they need. We'll get everything else massaged, your calves and your quads and your hamstrings. But actually your feet do do an Mm. awful lot for us. So just simply a couple of times a week, getting the ball out, just making sure that you're keeping your feet nice and mobile, which hopefully will help your feet to stay in one piece. I invested in one of those little spiky balls. Oh, yeah. Um, It was painful for the first few days, but actually I find it... It, quite a pleasant feeling now I've got used to it and I just do a couple of minutes each morning with my morning mobility that feels like it's helping if if nothing else it's just quite a pleasurable way to wake my feet up yeah and that's a really nice thing to do as well because if you're then going to go running you've actually woken your feet up like you say your neural system's going to mm. know that you've got feet and actually you'll use them better and they're all nicely warmed up brilliant so as I get to 60 and I know that I speak for some of my colleagues that are approaching that age too. I do wonder, not just am I more likely to get injured, but is there an age where that makes it more likely? So we know from um, research done into physiological components of fitness that there's a slow decline in muscle mass and strength from the mid-30s, but it becomes way more noticeable in the late 50s. And if you see research into vo2 max that that sort of drops off a cliff with a lot of people even active people in the mid 60s do you see an equivalent upswing in injuries after particular ages and does that differ between men and women big question yeah sorry lots of questions (laughs) no there's um i hate to say this but like i said I've been working with quite a few of my athletes for literally years and a number of them have now gone past the 30 point. Um, so there's a few things from there. Most of them have said that from 30 upwards, they've all noticed that it takes a little bit longer to recover. They need to do a little bit more stretching, um, be probably a little bit more sensible with some of their choices, which that's the elite athletes who do come and see me mm-hmm. most weeks. But actually, they've managed to keep themselves competing at their highest level. And that's runners, triathletes and squash that are all competing at a really high level because they are acknowledging the fact that they do need a bit more recovery. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so yeah, I don't think if you, you know, I think the, the people that will probably get the injured the most will be the ones that kind of blindly go, I'm not getting any older. I'm not going to make any kind of concessions to this. I'm just going to keep going doing what I was doing 10 years ago. Those are the problem people. I've also seen people that they're in their forties. They are literally, so these will be some of the MOT people. They are loving what they're doing and they just want to stay healthy, but actually they're, they're performing really, really well. They're doing personal best still because they're just making sure that the training they're doing is really good training. They're doing the right strength training or rehab or whatever else they've been doing. So I think, you know, you can be really sensible. I don't think just turning 30, 40, 50 is necessarily something that you need to Mm. go. It's all going to go downhill from here. Sometimes it's being smarter. So actually maybe you do need more recovery. So actually don't be rigid to your Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday speed sessions. Maybe you need to spread them out a little bit more. Mm. You would think, wouldn't you, that as athletes, um, we grow with our wisdom as we get older. And that is one of the benefits that Masters athletes have over perhaps our younger um, colleagues that compete is that we do have that wisdom and we've understood that perhaps changes are needed. And I, I know, f- f- you know, if I speak personally, I would much prefer to do 10 or 15 minutes of mobility work in the morning than get injured and miss several weeks of training because... It was my Achilles that was so sore. Um, it's almost like pay pay now with a little bit of mobility or pay later when you have to incur the pain and frustration expense of coming to see you. Coming to see you. No, definitely. And I think it, being smart, I think the, the trouble <laughs> with being an athlete, you've got that, that approach of if I just, I don't know, push it harder, train harder. Do more. Do more. I will get better. Well, actually, you do hit a certain point where actually that is going to be detrimental rather than a good idea. So it's acknowledging that. But um, with again, with the older athletes, I don't think you need to do as much because you've trained that neuro- nervous mm-hmm. system for years and years and years. It's about doing some of the work to maintain and maybe specifically build on the areas where you're maybe not quite so strong, mm. whether that's your VO2 max or strength. It doesn't really matter what it is. And again, you know, intense work, maybe doing less volume, but doing some slightly more intense sessions will probably help you to keep the bits in that you need to keep in. There'll be the bits that will drop off and affect performance on race day. Um, But also if you're doing some strength work, uh, some speed work rather, technically you will be running better than if you're just plodding along for a five-mile run that's just at kind of a really easy speed. There's a couple of things there, isn't there? Most of the older athletes I know still have an enthusiasm and mindset of 25-year-olds, which is a good thing in terms of, yeah, I can still do this, I'm still enthusiastic, I still want to do this. But in terms of actually thinking I am still 25, that's not such a good thing because you have to acknowledge that chronologically your body has been, you know, if you're like myself, you've been probably active since you were 10 playing football and rugby and cricket and then into triathlon later. So my body's been doing this stuff for 50 years. That's an awful lot of work it's helped me do. I need to show it a little bit of self-compassion. Um, the other thing is that I know that there's a concern amongst older athletes that you talk about doing some high intensity work and some stuff to preserve VO2 max, but that that is exactly the sort of work that's going to lead to them getting injured. The high output stuff, the explosive stuff. But it seems like you're suggesting that they should do that. So how do we make sure that we can do that and stay healthy? 
I think sometimes you it you can do an awful lot within half an hour. Mm-hmm. So you could actually do a really good intense session within half an hour. So maybe the time on your feet isn't quite as long as your mm. eight mile run might have been, but actually you'll have given your heart a really good workout. Or you can, because I think it's really important to juggle things to make them work for you. And maybe if doing that kind of thing is, you know, you, half an hour is enough for you on your feet because of whether it's injury or, you know, mm. full well that that is going to be the thing that will injure you. You can add in your warm ups or your warm down on a bike rather mm. than kind of fatiguing yourself and then going out and having to do that warm down that you would have done years ago. But maybe just nip on a bike or walk the warm down and adapt things like that so your volume is within a t- short patch of time preparing strength wise again i think we could then coming back to your strength work if your feet and your calves are strong if your technique is good mm-hmm. i think all those kind of things they shouldn't take as much out of you if you're trying to do a speed session on weak calves and weak hamstrings and your posterior chain doesn't work very well and your technique is terrible then yeah you are going to get injured, but I think it's more those things that are going to injure you rather than... Right, so... Or do them on a bike, which is safer. Okay, so we don't necessarily need to do VO2 max intervals running. We could we could tickle a VO2 max system by doing it on the bike, or maybe we could do some aqua jogging if we wanted to do a use a, a running action, or maybe we could do it as part of our swimming training. Um, but we could, we could go to the grass, go to a nice... Um, grass field where it's nicely mown and there's no nasty little holes that we're going to turn an ankle in and we could run briskly to maintain that speed couldn't we and the neuromuscular function without it challenging the vo2 max system but still getting the effect that we're after is turning the legs over quickly without creating a huge strain absolutely because that's a really nice surface um like you say just getting things ticking over quicker i like hills as well even if it's just on a slope you are mm. going to have to push a little bit harder oh hold on won't that wreck my achilles because i know people get told not to run hills if if they've got problems with their achilles not always again if you if you're strong enough and again I, i've got runners that i treat that they don't like running downhill because their knees don't like it mm-hmm. well actually you could go up and again if your calves are strong enough and your feet are working well enough it's a great workout for those you don't need to do vast amounts of hills to get a really strong workout Mm -hmm. for your musculoskeletal system and your obviously heart and lungs um but again i'd still come back to i think any speed work should be done with good strong feet and calves yeah and i mean i agree with you there i'm just playing devil's advocate (laughs) um I, i actually i went to what um to speak to Mark Johnson, I don't know if you know him, he's a, he's a horse race trainer, he's one of the top um, trainers for um, horses that run over hurdles and, and um, steeplechase. But if you go and watch his horses work out, they do two 800-metre sprints per day, that's it. Which, for those horses, probably about a 30-second sprint. But, but most of them are up a slight incline because he says that builds the strength as well. But it's not such an incline where the horses are really struggling to get uphill. And I, and I think, you know, if you're going to run uphill, you don't need to have a steep grade, do you? No, you absolutely don't. I, I know a lot, I see a lot of running clubs when they're doing hills, they find the steepest hill they can find. But you see people, the, the gate, the running gates change, their arm patterns change, their, 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 you know, their um, strides per minute changes um, in order to run uphill. It's like when people are towing those sleds, they alter the movement pattern, don't yeah. they, to move them. Whereas if you run up something that's a, a 2 or 3%, you can run with good posture and technique but still 
creating that bit of extra resistance. Yeah, and I think you know, running with intent. Mm-hmm. So if you stand at the bottom of that slope and you think, I am going to run from here to there and I'm going to do it hard, I'm going to use nice technique and you focus on it for that period of time, it's a really nice session to do because I think, you know, we've all done it. You go out and you're not mm-hmm. running with intent. You're just jogging along the road and looking at whatever you can see and mm-hmm. you're having a nice time because you're out exercising, but actually doing something like that where you just switch in for that mm-hmm. 20, 30 seconds. Yeah. And, I, and I, I also think that with a lot of endurance athletes, there's a, there's a feeling that you have to feel like you've worked really hard in order for the session to be beneficial. But... I think Phil Maffetone always says this. You never lose the ability to move fast. If an angry dog was chasing you, you'd be able to move very quickly if you were trying to get out of its way. So we, we have that innate sort of fight or flight thing. But but for most people, actually, as we talked about before, over distance races, it's not that they lack speed. If you give them 400 metres to run, they'd be able to do their race pace and more in that 400 metres. It's been able to, to do that over a distance um, and that's often technique that's failing them. So if you're running for 30 seconds at, at 80 to 90% effort, you're probably not going to be out of breath at the end of that. Give yourself a nice walk back and do it again. You get a real good quality workout without destroying your, um, your aerobic system, without creating all that corrosive loading that takes ages to recover from. Mm. No, and I think, you know, if you have had an injury and you're wanting to get back to doing some running or running is your thing, mm. There's a there is a lot you can do between VO you know the VO two max work just steady work um, drills again you, there's a lot you can do within half an hour mm. so you're not loading your musculoskeletal system as much but there's probably a variety of things you can do including some anaerobic work within that but within half an hour mm. yeah you, you were talking about you know the preference of that versus a long a long steady session. And I think we also forget that those long, steady sessions are still corrosive on the body. They, they, they drain the central nervous system and they do take recovering from. But uh, there's definitely seems to be a shift in people's mentalities to get older that, oh, that stuff's more comfortable to me. I'm, I'm not putting myself at risk by doing it. But it's just the explosive nature, maybe not putting yourself at risk, but you might be draining other parts of your system that need more recovery. Yeah, and just spending time on your feet for, you know, yes, it's less dynamic, so maybe less loaded through Mm. your tendons, but actually if you're spending three hours, four hours, 24 hours, some of these, you know, really long races, of course you're going to get fatigued. So then you do need other things to be Mm. strong, like your stability and how you move and how you breathe. And But yeah, stability, even good stability, 24 hours down the line, you will be probably overloading things that you didn't think you'd be overloading i can't remember who told me about the japanese endurance runners um were encouraged by their coach to do long hill walks okay so he would meet them at the top and they would walk up for two hours and i mean this is back to the horse race trainer he used to send the jockeys out just to ride the horses across the moor on the hills to build up strength but it's strength without a great deal of energy usage but it's but it's prolonged now, I mean, this, I know a lot of people think, well, I'm training for a run, so why would walking help? But again, you're spending time on your feet. And if you're walking across uneven ground up and down, you have to, and, and sort of maybe with a, an adverse camber, you have, you have a lot of other skills that you're trying to um, use at that same time, yeah, rather than think, just the aerobic, the high aerobic load. I also think walking at <laughs> speed, you actually switch muscles on. 
Mm. Whereas if you go and meander around, it actually is quite painful on your body because mm-hmm. you actually just end up hanging on your ligaments and your joints mm. because you're not doing anything purposefully. So I think walking at speed is better for you at quite often mm. than just moving really, really slowly where you're just hanging on your ligaments and you're not recruiting your muscles in the same way, which then doesn't protect your mm. joints and your tendons. Just talking about injuries and older athletes again, do you do you see a difference in the pattern of those injuries between male and female athletes? Unfortunately, yes. And unfortunately, females do tend to get more injured. Um, menopause is a big one because obviously there's a, you know, quite often a, we don't start with as much strength in most women as men anyway, um, just because of the way that we're built. So unless you're doing lots and lots and lots of gym work, you know, that will be the general pattern anyway. Female strength does tend to drop off more quickly, particularly as people are going through menopause. Um, is that sorry? Is that is that upper body and lower body as well? Yeah, it's everything. And there's a yeah, there's a knock on your knock on effect of you know, estrogen is really really important for soft tissue health as well as obviously your reproductive system. Um, and as that reduces, there isn't an injury effect. So you do need to change that. Positives at the moment is that there's been so much work done and things are really improving in that area as to how much you know addressing symptoms of menopause can help women there's definitely changes there obviously as with pregnancy that has a huge effect on your mm. body um the laxity that you get with being pregnant you don't get all of that back in it doesn't just shrink back mm. to the same sort of square one that you started with so that extra laxity needs looking after once the baby's you know arrived or however many children you might choose to have you know you are going to need more strength to help to support the things that are more lax than they were pre-pregnancy i was amazed last year that chelsea sadara was able to carry off a, a win in hawaii um i can't remember how many months it was since she'd given birth maybe uh, just over a year 15 months um an amazing performance not just to come back and do an ironman but but to win in such an, an outstanding way yeah, and it, it is possible. You just need to, again, mm. train smart, make sure you get things back to, you know, be, functioning. Be, be, as well be lucky. As, yeah, be lucky, get things functioning as well as mm. you can do in the space of time that you've got. Um, but, it, you know, it can take a good couple of years, even for your abs to start functioning and being as strong as they were before. Uh, HRT provides estrogen, doesn't it, for people? Is that right? Yes. So is that something that you would recommend for athletes that are going through the menopause in order to guard against that drop, that natural drop-off? Yeah, I, I think it's definitely worth seeing a GP about that or some of the menopause clinics that are now coming up because mm. your, your, your hormone levels can be up and down and up and down, which can affect your sleep. Um, it can affect your mood. Uh, there's loads of really good podcasts out there mm. that are talking about that. But in the same way that if you had low thyroid levels, then you would address that. And if it's helping support your system to be better, um, and I'm absolutely not an expert in that, but there are so many positive or well, negative effects of menopause that you probably don't even know until you're sort of mm. you know way down the line and much older. But certainly seeing the GP and um, just getting that help. Yeah, and it's different for everybody, isn't it? And I know, you know, there'll be be some females who say, well, I've not really noticed and it's not really affected me and others who feel like they're absolutely hammered by it. So 
it's okay to pick up a book and say, right, well, I'm going through this and this is what I'm going to do. I think each person needs to get individual advice and have an individual prescription for their lifestyle, maybe dietary choices, medication and exercise. And that needs a specialist, really. And somebody, perhaps, if you're, an ex- if you're exercising regularly, that's conversant with uh, endurance exercise. Yeah, and if, if exercise is part of what makes you feel good and actually all these hormonal changes mean that you don't even feel like you want to exercise, well, that's not good for you. So, you know, finding a way, and like you say, you know, being able to address your sleep and the nutrition, and there are so many things that you can do to make yourself feel better, but absolutely seeing the experts to help you out with that. And you do it for everything else about your body, and those are the people to see. What I'd like to do now to finish off, Alison, is... is you know, we've talked a lot about what can happen, um, the inevitable process of ageing. Um, I'd really like to talk now about what we can do, what what changes we we might be able to make, um, what we can do more of, what we can do a bit less of in order to continue to enjoy our sport and our activity into our 50s, 60s and 70s. Before we talk about that, we've talked about the feet and the calves quite a bit and you were kind enough to share that research study with me about calf strength and it um, links in with some questions I was asked by uh, a couple of female members of my SWAT group who were saying that they've noticed that their running speed particularly and I've, I've heard this comments from males and females that running speed seems to be the one thing that they lose as they get older um, and the, the results of that research might have given an answer to that so can you just briefly highlight what the research found and then maybe we can talk about what we can do to sort of minimize that effect yeah as you know calf strength has always been my probably biggest non-negotiable for any runner calf strength needs to be done it's really important it's your insurance policy against or hoping to reduce any kind of you know lower limb injury so the research by paul devita said This is a big summary, but the muscles of the lower legs and feet are prone to much less activation and power in the over 40s. So ideally, you want to have them as strong as you can get them. I would have my, you know, teenagers and 20 year olds doing calf strength, but they reduce in the over 40s. Mm. Um, And then more disturbingly, for every decade, you get a 20% drop in stride length and speed but they have put that down to largely being muscles in the lower leg. Okay. So, so it's not hip mobility. Less around the hip, less around the knee. So it's pretty much from the, the knee down was the biggest knock-on effect in terms mm. of causing these changes. So aging athletes then push off less powerfully with each stride. So if you can keep your feet and your calves strong, that will help you to maintain your stride length and your speed. The other thing with calf strength that's if you have got weak calves, obviously, generally, if you're running well, you've got nice, strong calves, your feet and foot and your calf will push you and propel you forwards off the ground. Mm. If that's not happening, you have to get your foot forward somehow. So your hip flexors and your quads will then overwork. Mm. So the minute you start then lifting your feet forward Mm -hmm. as opposed to propelling off the ground, you get a whole cascade of things that then start working differently. So 
if your foot isn't pushing off the ground, your hamstrings is going to work less. Your calf obviously is going to work less. Your glute muscles, which your big powerhouse at the back there, they're going to work less. The muscles that will then overwork will be the ones at the front. So your hip flexors and your quads. Ah, hence the reason why we complain of tight quads towards the end of our half marathon and marathon. Exactly. So you could have strong-ish calves that maybe work for half of the mm-hmm. half marathon, but actually that last bit, and I like my runners to be able to do their strength work at the end of a run. Because mm-hmm. actually, if you can't do one calf raise by the time you finished a run, mm-hmm. I would A, be wondering what you've been using while you have been running, and B, at what point did that run out? So, mm-hmm. you know, I think you, you need to have really good, strong calf muscles to stay healthy, to help prevent those kind of changes. Um, and we were talking earlier about your hip flexors and quads. So if your quads and your hip flexors are too tight or they can't let go, so you might have adequate passive length, but if you muscles, if your brain doesn't let your hip flexor go, you won't, again, you won't be able to access mm. your glute max at the back. So encouraging your muscles to work properly in the right way is really important. And again, if you're planning on doing an Ironman or a marathon, those calf muscles really, really need to be strong. And I remember you telling me that, um, you know, we divide the calf muscles into two, don't we? We've got the ones that we can see, the the big fleshy muscle, the gastronemius, that's very obvious. And if somebody's really lean, it's almost looked like it's split in two and it's very defined. But then we've got the less obvious soleus muscles, which are lower down and sort of close to the Achilles, but they work when the knee's bent. So when you're cycling, they're quite active. And if they're not that strong, then when you get off the bike and you're already, they're already fatigued, then that's they're going to impact on your running from an early from an early point in your in your race definitely and then what we also find in the clinic so if your soleus is weaker then you tend to use the next layer in so the next layer in is your fhl which is your flexor lucis longus that goes down to curl your big toe your flexor digitorum longus that curls your little the, the other four toes and your tib posa you'll tend to cheat and use those by clawing your toes more ah and then which might your then give fascia. you exactly, yeah, yeah. exactly. But okay. also, if you try walking with your toes screwed up, it's yeah. virtually impossible. So yeah, if you're trying yeah. to then recruit all of the wrong muscles, right? So yes, really good idea to have good gastroc strength. You also need really good soleus strength. But then we also need to know that your balance is good enough that you're not scrunching your toes while you're doing that. So you can actually roll through your toes properly, access the other muscles. Wow. Hopefully. Those feet. Who knew how good they were? Those feet. While we're on the subject of balance, (laughs) again, that kind of overloads. If you stand on one leg, one obviously running as a series of hopping from one leg to the other, Mm -hmm. you should be able to keep your chest over your pelvis. Yeah. A lot of people can't do that and they get a lot of swinging of the thorax left to right. If you ask them to hop from or just even step to the side, again, you should be able to control your thorax over your pelvis. You step to the right and they should stay one over the other and to the left. You get a lot of people where their top half overshoots and comes back. That overshoot overloads your calf, it overloads your shin, Mm. it overloads your Achilles, because, again, you're having to work things in a way that's just not quite as efficient as it could be. I'm just thinking 90 steps per minute, running for four hours. Right, so that's 60 times 90. 54,000 steps. So if you're off balance or badly balanced 54,000 times for each foot, you'd actually don't have to overload 
all of those t connected tissues by very much to create a serious overload or fatigue by the time you get to the end of that run, do you? Yeah, and even if you're spending 0.01 of a second more on each foot because of this overshoot, mm. um, it you know, and you're going to be spending more time on the ground. Yeah. For definite, it will be overloading structures that don't mm. really need to be overloaded. I, I've seen some other research where it talks about what makes the fastest runners the fastest, and it's ground contact time, isn't it? And, um, you know, that is... It sounds fairly obvious, doesn't it, about ground contact time, but even elite marathon runners, who would you wouldn't necessarily say are speedy compared to a Usain Bolt, but still they have really impressive ground contact time, yeah. which enables them to have that fast leg turnover. And you mentioned that as athletes get older, not only does their stride length go, but their, their speed. So I guess that's, that's a frequency of foot contact. Yeah. So you just it's almost like you're running through a sticky substance and your foot's on the ground for a little bit longer. So that's another reason why you, you, your running times are going um, to get slower. Yeah, and also if, you, if your stride length is shorter, you will be doing more strides per mile which is more foot contacts mm. and more load. So, But if you can't get the stride speed up, then actually you're just going slower, aren't you? Yeah. Oh, it all sounds like really bad news, isn't it? But it's not. I mean, that's the thing. And this is why I'd like to end on a positive um, note is to spend a few minutes talking about what we can do to injury-proof the body. So that when we're into our 60s, we don't need to approach those that birthday with trepidation. We can actually enjoy the fact that we're moving up to a different age group and we're going to dominate that age group because we've looked after ourselves better than everybody else. So this is a chance to make a name for ourselves, Alison. Right. Well, first of all, I think the 60 now is it's not what it used to be, is it? Thank you. I'm glad you said that. <laughs> But I think, you know, there are, we get so many people in the clinic that are so inspiring and they're in, in their 80s. Mm. And I think these should be poster men and women for what you can do into your older age. I, I agree. They're so inspiring. Um, and I think there are things that we can do that they don't take a lot of time. Foot and calf strength, absolutely, that is the biggest thing that you can do to keep yourself healthy. So let, let's stop there or let me stop you there and just say... Give me a definite prescription of foot and calf strength, please. And yeah, so frequency as well. Again, I think probably a minimum, like if you're a younger athlete um, and you're doing lots and lots of miles, I used to do calf strength every single day without fail. Um, I didn't do it after a track session. That's probably the, the one time if I had a big track session, I wouldn't do it then because my calves obviously would have had a big workout on the track. So mm -hmm. let's not overload them twice. Um so I think doing calf strength work probably somewhere between three and five times a week mm -hmm. would be a really good place to start. I like all my runners to be able to do three sets of 25 single leg calf raises at the end of a run. The reason to do it at the end of the run is so that you can see whether actually if you can only do five at the end of the run, then you probably haven't got enough endurance and you are starting to run out of strength at that point right now i don't think i can manage three times 25 so for most people who probably aren't at that level either where would they start i mean i suppose just doing something's better than doing what they're at the moment which is nothing yeah so that's also straight leg and bent leg so you would do bent leg and straight leg in the same 
thing or would you alternate days for those? No, I would do them the same thing. Okay. Do them before you come in the front door so they're done. You don't have to then think about them again. So habit, so, habit stacking, it's called. Exactly. So I would do left, right, left, right, left, right of straight and then left, right, left, right, left, right of bent leg. I would start if you're not feeling, if you're not particularly strong, then I'd get you starting three sets of eight and then build up as you get stronger to three sets of 10, three sets of 12 and build up like that. Would you always start on single leg then? No. Uh, so again, I'll test that in the clinic. So if when you're rested, you can't do a calf raise very well or you can't go through the full height. So the way I'd normally teach it, I'll get them to put fingers, two fingers on the wall, get them on two feet to go up to the top of the height you know, that they can lift the heel off the ground. So that will tell them how high they should be able to go. If they haven't got any injuries, obviously if they've got an acute injury, I would change all of this anyway. I wouldn't get someone to do single leg calf raise with a raging Achilles problem. So they'll work out what the height that they should be able to go to. I will ask them if they can do that on one leg. And so I'll get them to do it with a straight leg and a bent leg. I'll then get them to try it with one leg, but say, obviously, if you if it's sore, don't do it. I'll look at how high can they go, how their foot moves, the control that they've got, and how many they can do. So ideally, I would ask them to do between 10 and 15, depending on how strong they are. If I'm seeing that they're struggling after five or they can't get through the full height, so I'll say, okay, well, this is, if you go back to the double leg one, that's how high I want you to go. Can you do that? And they either obviously say yes or no. Um, If they can't go through the full height or they haven't got the control, so they're wobbling on the way up or they're wobbling on the way down, I would adapt the exercise. So with some people, I'll get them to start with doing double-legged just to get some capacity in there. So double-legged straight, double-legged bent. If someone's probably midway, then double-leg's too easy for them, but they can't yet do full range of single leg, I'll get them to put their foot on, a say, the downstairs step or the edge of the, you know, if you're outside, you could do it on the edge of the gutter, or they put their foot on the Reebok step. So they've got one leg on a Reebok step. The working leg is on the ground. They can take 10, 15, 20% some body weight off with the one on the Reebok step so that they can then go up and down through full volume on the one leg. Do you recommend, you mentioned them doing it on the step there, do you recommend that it's on the step and not just off the, you know, off the flat surface? Is it, is it important for the heel to drop below the point of the toes or just to go flat? So the reason I recommend it on the step is so that the, if, you're on the, if you're wearing your trainers, your foot won't come down to the ground like your actual heel. Ah, okay. So I'd get them to do it on a step, but I would say just take your heel down so it's level with the step. So the bottom of the trainer will come down slightly below there. Okay. If you've got other things going on in your Achilles, like you've got an irritable bursa or something there, you may not like to go all the way down. So, And I don't think it's necessary. So I would get them to do it on the step just so you can get full range from flat all the way up. And you recommend people do this wearing shoes just because it's more comfortable on the bones of the feet? Yeah, I you guess. can do it in bare feet, but... Um, is more comfortable and if you wear orthotics and i would suggest you wear your trainers with your orthotics so your foot's in a really nice position before you start okay so calf raises um what about preventing the plantar fascia the ball work three or four times a week a couple of minutes every morning three or four times a week but getting strong feet and achilles that will help with your um plantar fascia issues and just making sure that your calves are long yeah so stretching so ideally you'd run you do your strength work, 
give your scars a quick stretch and then you're done. Right, now, if you ever read about strength training in the books or magazines, it talks about, you know, you need to constantly be loading and progressive overload. Once we're able to do three lots of 25 on one leg, you know, with both legs and with bent knees as well, that's that's probably going to take you a 10, 15 minutes to do. Do we keep upping the ante there? Do we keep going until we can do three times 30? Or once we've reached a level, are we just at a maintenance load then? I think I would either maintain that load or you could get someone to put a rucksack on their back. Or a weighted vest or something. Or a weighted vest. Or if you're in the gym, you might choose to do one of your sessions with in the Smith machine so you can do that with a bar. Um, but I think if you haven't got access to a gym, having a rucksack on, I don't think you need to go up to do 30. You're going to be loading your calves anyway. So if your calves are strong enough and you use your calves when you're running and doing everything else, you know, I think there's, you know, that will be ample. And if we have a weighted vest or a backpack, you know, are we better making sure we can get to 25 first before we start adding that? Is, is there any benefit in doing, say, three times 10 with some added load? As long as you're going through the full range, you could maybe do three by 10. It depends. It depends. It depends on what the issues are that you've got. I mean, got. Some, somebody might say, well, I haven't got enough time to do three lots of 25, both leg and with bent knees as well as straight, but I can do three lots of 10. It'll take me half the time if I wear um, or if I have a bit of extra resistance. Yeah, would be happy with that. But what I wouldn't want you doing is just sticking it three by 10 of body weight because that right. wouldn't be enough. Right. Okay. Um, I sense that there are some other things that are musts. You know, you mentioned earlier about the X the exercises that people have identified are specific to them. So if they've got tight hip flexors, yep. obviously you'd want to work on those. But if your hip flexors are in good shape, then obviously that's that's a um, an option, but not a doable. But it seems like balance work is something we should all be doing on a regular basis, regardless. Definitely. Because even if we're good at it, we want to maintain it. And if we're not good at it, we need to learn how to be. Yeah, and I think the other one that goes along with balance is can you stand on one leg and then maintain that balance and turn your head left and right. Because mm-hmm. if you can't do that and you're running down the road and it's either getting a bit dark or you're looking for traffic or you're looking for the dog or you're talking to your friend who happens to be on your right side or your left side, those are the things that will actually catch you out. So having the good enough balance to be able to turn your head and be a bit distracted, if you're in a race situation again, you need to be able to do that mm. um, without falling off your bike or your over your feet um some nice options to add in you mentioned skipping do you think that's something that we should all be trying to um include as part of an active warm-up maybe yep so i think skipping's great again i'd want you to make i'd want to make sure that you're injury free that you can skip well and that you've got strong enough feet and calves um i think it's a really nice thing to do before you go out you don't have to do tons of it you can even just again put your fingers on the wall for balance at home and or just when you get out just do some you know Mm. double-legged bouncing just to get your feet primed for when you do go out Mm. what else should we have in there because i'm thinking also where we meet resistance is when the people have this big long menu of things that they have to do before they go out it just becomes overwhelming so whilst we don't want to overwhelm folks we also want to make sure that they can continue to do this stuff without having to um, stop because they're injured. So it's, it's sort of we're trying to find a balance, aren't we, between um, what enables us to continue without it feeling just like what's the point in starting? Yeah, no, definitely. So I think knowing your aggravators. Right. 
if you know that your back doesn't like sitting for too much or everything feels a bit switched off and you'll know that if you get up in the morning my preference is to run in the morning I know I feel much better in the morning than if mm. I was to sit for two hours and then go for a run mm. I know I don't my body just doesn't like sitting um so if I possibly can I'll make sure I don't sit for hours and do it that way I'll try and run first so just even doing that will mm. be healthier for you if you know that sitting mm-hmm. is your aggravator yeah so find out what your aggravators are and listen to them because that will make things a lot nicer for you. Things like, you know, if, you, if you've got the point where your knees don't like downhill running down really, really steep hills, walk. <laughs> you know, I'm not saying don't run on hill, you know, on a hilly ground, but actually if the end of it is walking down off the Chevin, then that actually is much mm. better for your knees and probably will enable you to get out whenever you next want to go mm. out. Um, you were talking about people not wanting to do lots and lots of stretches before they go out. Well, actually, again, finding out the things to do. So if you know that your hip flexors get tight, yes, loosen those off. But I think activating things is a really good thing to do before you go out. And that can take you five, 10 minutes maximum. So get your calves going, you know, 10 glute bridges one side, 10 glute bridges the other. So you wake the things up that you will then go and use when you run. So it's almost like, strength training when you're out running because you've pre-activated everything so i think those are and they make you feel better as well when you get out there you actually feel like you're more likely to be bouncing Mm -hmm. down um drills i think are really good things to add in which again can be part of a warm-up maybe take five minutes off your run time so instead of doing 40 minutes do five minutes of drills and then do your run yeah and let's face it if you don't do those five minutes of drills where you can be lifting your heart rate as well you're probably going to just be jogging along. But, but back to that thing about when you do stuff purposefully rather than just aimlessly. Um, drills, because you're having to think about what you're doing, tend to be purposeful. But for most people, when I see them warming up, they're just jogging along, looking at what's going on around them without paying any attention to actually how they're running. Yeah, and I quite often get, if people haven't got great, if, if they've got hip range, but actually they've, they've kind of got to the point where they don't flex very well when they're running, I'll get them to do that before they go out and just mm-hmm. do hip circles against the wall or a piston hamstring so that actually they've just reminded their brain they've got a hip joint that they need to use, mm-hmm. um, which will then enable the whole of the leg to work better for them. Um, I think getting to the bottom of any injuries and niggles, really important. Because again, why put up with something you don't need to have? And I think people maybe don't go to the physio often as they should because they maybe think we're going to stop them doing what they want to do. Well, actually, hopefully there aren't that many physios around that would actually do that. We will stop people if they really need to be stopped. But, you know, we will all try our very, very best to keep people doing what they love doing. Mm. Yeah, I think I think that's really important. It seems like um, sports physio has moved on a lot since the early days. I guess there's more people that are specialists in that now. And that that was one of the things I learned is we don't we want to try and find a, a way to help you train it around this injury or to fix it rather than just getting you to a complete stop because that's just going to make you miserable anyway, isn't it? Yeah, and it's it doesn't do anybody any good. I think with um with breaks, one thing that has come out again out of the older athletes, a lot of them don't like having if they're going to take an end of season break, mm. making sure that they're still working on. And again, it's usually the feet. So either just doing a couple of little jogs in a week just to make sure they are still using their feet or keeping in all their strength work or their drills just so that, you know, you're not letting those kind of areas yeah. disintegrate. Yeah, I've noticed this as well is that 
as you get older, and this is another reason for paying attention to this sort of work, is as you get older, if you get injured, you seem to lose your fitness quicker and it takes you longer to get it back. Same with illness. So that's another reason for maybe not pushing things to the limit like you did when you were younger is, you know, you perhaps can't afford to lose that fitness and you get frustrated by taking the the amount of time to recover. But at the end of the season, um, that, that, that rest and recovery prescription is different. And it, it doesn't mean you have to stop being active. Just do different sorts of activities. Back to what you were saying earlier about letting your body move in different ways. Um, you know, go walking, go try paddleboarding, go kayaking so you're using your body. Um, maybe do some ballroom dancing. Um, but also, are we trying to preserve aerobic fitness? Maybe we don't need to. We can do that with some other activities. But for running, we do need the tendon loading, don't we? So yeah. um, 10 minutes is enough, I guess, no, to do that. definitely. And again, just back to tendon loading, you know, if we've got athletes or anyone who's pregnant who is a runner um maybe doesn't consider themselves an, an athlete to the elite level but actually for those people again if if your feet and your tendons are the issues mm. just doing that through your pregnancy will mean that actually when you come out of that and then get back into your sport again you've, you've almost protected yourself because you haven't let that go you've maintained mm. what you've got um because all of these changes they'll be the things that will catch you out because you you know i gets taken off the ball and what what are your thoughts on running off road versus on the pavement or on tarmac? Personally, I love it. I think it's you know it again. It's not as hard. It's a bit more challenging, um, just because you are having to you know balance a bit more. But I think as a surface, that's good for your your feet and your calves and everything else. I think it's it's great to do. Is is there any truth to the the notion that if you spend all your time running off road and you've got a and you've got an event coming up that's on tarmac, your um, your leg muscles won't be used to that impact so much, the hard surface, and therefore they'll they'll get sore more quickly during the event. And therefore you'd need to add some road running into your training just to prepare yourself for that. I think ideally, yes, you would add some road training in mm. just to prepare you for that. I think you probably won't notice it so much through the event, but you may well get really sore calves afterwards because it, it is, tarmac is harder, obviously, than off-road. Mm-hmm. Cement is harder again. So if you've run anywhere where you've had to literally run up and down the promenade and it's all cement, it's mm. definitely a lot harder and you just get a little bit more impact through. So, yeah, yeah totally agree with you. Do a little bit of preparation. I don't think it's the end of the world if you don't. But yes, your legs might well be more sore. Yeah, and it's it's again, it's balancing that that thing out, isn't it? You probably get a slightly faster recovery from um, from running off road because you don't have that leg trauma. You don't have all those little micro tears that you get from pounding the pavements. Yeah, and it you know pounding the pavements will just load your joints up a wee bit more. Mm. Anything else that we've not covered, Alison? Uh, I think that's mostly everything. Um, we, well, one thing we haven't talked about is daily mobility. So I've become a massive advocate of this, mostly encouraged by yourself and Louisa over the years and Sarah Pitts. And, and it's become a, a, an integral part of my day as much as brushing my teeth now. And I, I guess people are getting a bit tired of me banging on about it, but it's made such a difference in my 
ability to move. I feel like I'm actually running better now because I'm just taller and I'm better on my feet, lighter on my feet. It's definitely made a difference for my, um, you know, my calf injuries and my Achilles problems. Um, you haven't mentioned that really. Is that is that something that you would advocate that people try to build into their lives, either as a, a block or a little what we call movement snacks, just getting up from your desk and doing sort of 60 seconds of um, some sort of yoga move? Yeah, no, you've cleverly brought us back to fascia again. <laughs> okay. Um, I think probably one of the bigger things that we see in people that age is they don't move through range very well. So whether that's you... I don't know, doing a drill and bringing your knee up to hip height or being able to do a squat. Sometimes your brain forgets it can do it, but actually it forgets how to do it. So as people, we find other ways to adapt. So you maybe get halfway into a squat and then bend over at the waist, which overloads your back. Mm. So even just doing a set of 10 bodyweight squats, which aren't even for weight training, they're just to keep your hips mobile and going through their you know, mm-hmm. normal range of motion, sitting and rotating your back, reaching up to the ceiling, which stretches through your lats and your shoulder. A um, friend of mine, he used to do lots of the, the fascial teaching. She said, your fascia is a little bit like chewing gum. So if you start with a stick of chewing gum, it's obviously quite sort of crispy. And then the more you chew it, the mm. softer it gets and the more mobile. So that is what happens to your fascia if you keep moving it. If you, obviously you get, you know, little changes and little bits of adhesions that form. So if you're always sitting in a shortened mm-hmm. position, everything just gets quite sticky. So then you go and ask it to do something like maybe reach in the pool because you're getting a really nice long reach. Well, if you haven't got enough length in your fascia and your muscles, then you are going to then start getting little bits of niggles. So absolutely agree with just keeping things moving, but it doesn't have to be a chore. Like you say, if you put the kettle on, couple of side flexes and reaching up to the ceiling and a knee up to your chest that would be enough to you know just keep keep things you know moving nicely i mean there's lots of there's lots of those little activities that we mentioned today that you can fit easily into your daily life it talked about the one-legged standing again while you're waiting for the kettle to boil brushing your teeth in the morning or in the evening there's most people do that there's probably a, a couple of minutes at each of those opportunities so four minutes of balance work every day yeah, and you're way better to do little bits all day than do one big session in the evening that becomes a chore. Ad breaks as well if you're watching television. You know, there's enough ad breaks unless you've bounced through them because you've recorded something that, you know, you can do little bits and pieces within that as well. Who watches TV with ads these days? <laughs> <laughs> or if you can multitask, Simon, you can always do them when you're just watching the programme without the ad breaks. Yeah, well, I... I... Quite often on my yoga mat position there in front of the telly and, and just um, sit on the floor cross-legged. That was something I could never do before or sit on my heels. Um, it took a bit of time and it was a little it was a little tight uh, in my quads to start with, but I can do it comfortably now. But that was just, well, I sit on the couch watching the telly. Why don't I just sit on the floor and do something more useful? Yeah, and sitting crossing your legs is great for hip mobility. Mm. I always think if you look at those... Um, places like Indonesia or India or where you see groups of older men sitting around chatting, but often they'll be sitting on the haunches or sitting cross-legged into the 60s and 70s. And, but they, they, they can do it for hours and then they just get up and move around. Um, yeah, I hope I'm able to do that. You probably will be able to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it takes effort, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, or, or, or just part of your daily routine, which I think perhaps the Western lifestyle doesn't... Um, it's taking us more away from that, so it requires a bit more effort. 
Definitely. Definitely. Alison, it's been an absolute pleasure, as always. Thank you so much no, for um, you. uh, your, your gracious um, donation of time today and your knowledge. Uh, hopefully the listeners will be able to um, put into practice some of the lessons that we've shared today. And maybe some of those more forward-thinking ones might book in for a, an assessment to find out what those, uh, um, what did you call them, the limiters are, Yeah, the aggravators. No, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I love sport and I think it's, you know, your health is so important and if we can keep people doing what they love for as long as possible then that's really important Thank you to Alison for joining me as a guest on this week's High Performance Human podcast to make sure you don't miss any episode in the future please go to iTunes search for High Performance Human Triathlon Podcast and click the subscribe button In introduction to this episode I mentioned the benefits of our membership programme which include access to a growing library of training plans for a whole range of endurance events ranging from triathlon, duathlon, aquabike, swim run, Xterra, Grand Fondo cycle races, right through to ultra trail runs, marathons, and some more focus plans to help you build mobility and strength, as well as build specific aspects of your fitness like functional threshold power on the bike or critical swim speed in the pool. We also offer monthly free workshops as part of the membership which are exclusive to our SWAP members and access to our growing range of educational workshops on subjects like nutrition, sleep, stress management, strength and many more to come. We also have a growing number of discounts on partner products that I believe in and which I use myself and for which I do not get paid to promote. So if you'd like to learn more about these and access the member-only benefits, please visit my website, simonwar.co.uk. Click on the Work With Me button and then on the Swap button. Or you can find a link in the show notes below. You can also find me on social media. I'm on Twitter, Instagram and YouTube as the Triathlon Coach or Triathlon Coach. And if you're on iTunes and you'd like to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, then you can find a link for that in the show notes below. That's all for now. So thank you very much again for joining me and I'll see you on the next episode.